Okay, here it comes. Mess call. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Welcome again, everybody, to the USGS Topo Map Quad by Quad Podcast. This is your host, Jimmy G. And today we'll be taking a look at the quad hey, for hey, don't, Herod, hey, Illinois. Excuse, and, excuse me, um, oh, I'm here too. Oh, oh, wait a minute. What night is this? This is Tuesday. Now, let, now what were you saying again? Oh, crap. I record that on Thursday nights. Oh, man, I got the wrong podcast in my head here. Um, hey, everybody, this is Jimmy G, and you're listening to the Pie Factory Podcast. Uh, wait a minute, it's Tuesday. Yeah, it's Tuesday night. You're listening to the Pie Factory Podcast. Uh, the topo map thing that's that's I record that on Thursdays. Uh, what if they're listening again, to I'm this from, on Thursdays and they're really going to be confused? Uh, you know, well, if they're listening to this podcast anyway, they're confused. It kind of goes with the territory. Don't you tis think it's true? It is true. It is true. So once again, I'm I'm from the logistics center down here in Morris, Illinois, although I heard they're going to be demoting me to the factory farm. So I don't know oh. what to think about that, but. At any rate, so that's my situation. I, I got to go in for a meeting on it tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, so yeah, we'll let, see what let happens. Let me know how with that it. goes. Uh, meanwhile, I'll just yeah. stick around here at Pie Factory Headquarters North. Oh, by the way, this is uh, Sean Coe, I guess. Yeah, Sean Coe. Hey, you know what? It, it occurs to me that the uh, our stock options that we're getting from the from our employer. Uh, why is Hyde getting so much more than us? I, I don't understand that. I We've talked about this before. It's a, it's a really weird contract that I really wish you would have been there to because you could have bailed us out of so much. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. We it's it's schedules, almost like he owns but, the company now. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary. Uh, something else he kind of pointed out. To, and this is weird because like he can't just send us the electronic version of the final podcast. He wants to hand it off in person. I don't. It's some kind of internet paranoia or something, but something else I didn't realize, and he was kind enough to point out to me, is that we are not allowed to um, disparage him. It actually spells that out in his contract. Oh, so I can't say anything negative nope. about the fact that he keeps coming to my place in person with a reel-to-reel recording of the podcast, and I don't even have a reel-to-reel player. I know, I know, but what are you going to do? So, oh, well, um, oh, did we just record all that? Ugh, dang it! That was supposed to that was supposed to be an outtake. Ugh. You can, oh, well, I'm sure hey, he everybody. can edit it out. Um, so, uh, what did we talk about last week? Oh yeah, Ladybug and Pango. Did we have any addenda or errata on that? Wow, jumping right in. Um, yeah, I have some addenda and errata for each. Actually, um, a little. I don't know if it's so much errata. It's more like addenda, thankfully, because I didn't get anything wrong, and I don't think you did either. <laughs> so look at that. We neither of us made a mistake. <laughs> first off, Pango. I want to go back to that thing about how the first arcade release of Pango used the hot butter. Remember Hot Butter, the one-hit wonder, and their one hit was Popcorn, how that provided the background yep. music for Pengo. Well, and we kind of, uh, you you had brought it up that maybe it's because of copyright reasons that in later ROMs it was changed, and I kind of agreed with that. It sounded uh, plausible. It, it very well did, but um, of course, because uh, we do things in a very understandable order, I did the research after we recorded and released the show. And found that a lot of the home ports kind of varied back and forth between popcorn, 
and the original mu- the original composition that they made for the game. And it, it didn't seem that release date had any kind of correlation to anything. It just seemed almost random. Like some of the newer ones use popcorn, some of the older ones don't, some of the older ones do use popcorn, some of the newer ones don't. So I don't understand the lot the, the, any kind of pattern hmm. there. Yeah, that doesn't make much sense at all unless those ROMs weren't in the were uh, overseas ROMs. Because I don't think I've seen a a, a a pingo machine here in the states that actually had popcorn on it. Could be that. Could be that. I don't know. I I don't know. If anybody has an answer, you know. <laughs> Feedback bait. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything further to add about uh, Pengo? No, love the game. That's about okay, it. Okay, good, because um, I have some addenda for Ladybug, too. You know, one thing I wanted to point out about Ladybug, yes. and uh, we don't normally talk about uh, about the cabinets for any of the machines that we talk about. Uh, we're going to make an exception tonight about Tapper. Uh, oh, but yeah. uh, for Ladybug... This, you know, you, you on the screen it looks like you know a ladybug. You know the little the little red insects that uh, you know would have all the spots that my daughters when they were younger used just to go bonkers over. Well, have you seen the side art <laughs> and the bezel art for uh, the ladybug arcade game? If I did, it was thirty some years ago. It is totally bizarre. It's it's like these. It's like a yellow fairy, kind of like Tinkerbell. It doesn't. It's supposed to be a ladybug, but it looks nothing like a was ladybug. It, tink- it looks like it looks a lady. Like Tinkerball? Is that what you said? <laughs> you said Tinker. <laughs> it looks like Tinkerbell. It, it, it looks like a lady. It doesn't look like a ladybug. And it, in my opinion, just absolutely, totally bizarre. Huh. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Take a look at it. Um, when I uh, received through. Probably less than legal means. The ROMs that I'm using, uh, hi Universal, um, <laughs> included with it was the uh, was uh, an image of the bezel, and I was playing Ladybug on Mame, and it was one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen. It like has nothing to do with the game. Well, tangentially maybe, but it just I don't know. It was weird. Thought I'd bring that I up. I wonder if so. maybe that bezel was a leftover from another game. Entirely Which, possible, but I couldn't think of anything else in Universal's catalog that would have had a character like that. And that brings me to this next addendum. I had said that uh, when I was kind of going through the MAME settings and the dip switch settings, that I saw that there was a setting in which you can set the coin-to-credit ratio as high as one coin for five credits. And I had wondered if there were any other games. It turns out that... I think pretty much all the Universal games were were like that. I loaded up Mr. Do and Mr. Do's Uh Castle. Both had settings like that. And here's something else that's really fascinating. It blew my little mind. Hmm. Now, we had talked about how Ladybug, not only does it have the extra word that you spell out, like, say, Mr. Do does, but it also has special. Now, in the Ladybug dip switch settings, you can set the level of difficulty, like how easy or hard it is to be able to spell out either of those words. Right. Here's a bombshell for you. Mr. Do has the exact same settings, including for special. No kidding. No kidding. Wow. I don't know if that was just a leftover from something, which it very well could have been because Ladybug predates Mr. Do. Aha. So maybe Mr. Do was a conversion kit very well could have been or if maybe there's some other kind of special thing or if they somehow mapped it to maybe the diamond or something interesting i am very very curious about that very very fascinating 
Yes, well, I'll have to take a look at that. Because that is really hard to spell out special in that game. You can probably spell out extra before you spell yeah. out special, just because of the speed which you got to you know pick up the the letters to spell special. You got a little bit more leeway with extra. I actually looked through all the gameplays on YouTube, and I couldn't find one in which somebody actually did spell out special. No kidding. No kidding. I only looked for arcade conversions. I didn't look for the home versions, but I uh, I just pretty much gave up after level twelve trying to do it uh, with all the cheats on. Because it was it was obvious it was going to take me a while because it was just not bringing me up the letters that I needed to spell it. So that random thing is going to piss you off. So Sure. Do you have anything else to add about uh, Ladybug? I got nothing else right now. How about you? Nothing else. All right. So, uh, hey, you know what? We actually got some listener feedback from our good friend Chris Plus Plus. So why don't we listen to that now? Oh, okay. Hey, Ferg. Oops. <clears throat> hey, Sean and Jim or Jim and Sean to be alphabetical about it, or Inky and Dauber, or Jimmy G and Sean Co., which I call you sometimes, in spite of the fact that I gather it kind of annoys you, and that amuses me, but I can understand. It makes you sound like a drugstore. It's very daring of you to solicit audio submissions for the last show of the year, and I'm compelled to record one, even though I have nothing to talk about, apart from a game you've already covered, The Lady Bug. Uh, because in spite of being, in the words of the last woman I made the mistake of trying to live with, painfully introverted, I am also, to quote Veruca Salt, the band, not the character from the only real Willy Wonka movie, the first one, I couldn't be any lamer. I'm a born entertainer. So, Ladybug... No, I'm not going to do that to you. You're welcome. Ladybug, an awesome 1981 arcade game from Universal. It's compared with Pac-Man far too often, in my never-humble opinion. While it's likely that the game would not exist had it not been for Pac-Man, when you actually play it and, and get into it, you know, and devise strategies around the revolving doors, trapping the monsters and forcing them into the skulls, and spelling out words with your unsettlingly omnivorous Ladybug, who for some reason never gets any fatter throughout the course of the game, Hey, you realize that it's about as much of a Pac-Man ripoff as one of the Super Mario Brothers games is a ripoff of Space Panic, speaking of Universal. Anyway, looking at Ladybug, one can understand what the curmudgeons were on about in the 80s regarding the bad influence that video games had on young people. And I'm sure you'll agree, to this day, too many of these damn kids are out there walking the street, eating all the flowers. The graphics are obviously best in the original version. The enemy bugs, anyway, are very funny. They kind of look like Muppets, with those, you know, googly eyes. And just before you kill them, you can say, Don't be fooled, fellas. I'm no lady. And that's your abdomen. I'm going to agree with you, Sean. And maybe, Jim, I don't know if you agree with this or not. In fact, I'm going to take it a bit further. The best version of Ladybug on anything, according to me is the homemade Atari 2600 adaptation, and I'm including the original. Even that one's not quite as good, as far as I'm concerned. First of all, in the original game, and on the ColecoVision, and I don't like it when games do this, you cannot transition smoothly through a diagonal direction. You pretty much have to let go of the controller to change from, say, a westward heading to a northward heading. There obviously isn't any diagonal movement in the game, but you know what I mean. If you try to fluidly move from one cardinal heading to another. Your ladybug just freezes. And there are plenty of examples of games in which the programmers actually thought of that and allow you to smoothly change from one direction to another so that there's no excuse. Now I admit that the arcade game 
most likely involves a four-way joystick, so you can't accidentally move diagonally anyway. But there's no reason for that concession to have been omitted from the ColecoVision conversion. The Cole conversion? Eh? Eh. Anyway, the actual controls should never be part of the challenge, you know? The challenge should be in the gameplay. It is cool that I can use the original Atari joystick, the great CX-40, to play it, along with my other ColecoVision favorites, Frenzy and Pepper 2, because no second fire button is required, you see. So I can spare myself that awful Coleco controller. As you've discussed, spelling out the word special in the arcade game gives you a free credit. It gives you a free game. I don't know if you've ever seen the intermission screen when that has been achieved, but winning that free game makes you a ladybug a guest at an utterly irrelevant wedding. I'm not making it up. It's got nothing to do with the rest of the game. You see two people getting hitched, and then you see your ladybug somehow manage to digest a giant quarter, and you get a free game. And, you know, what the hell does somebody need with a free game if he's bought a cartridge, right? So the programmers of the ColecoVision translation came up with that great veggie hunt screen for the home game only, right? Also in the original and on the ColecoVision, the letters remain red for something like 147 million billionth of a second. You almost have to get right up against the closest letter and start moving before it turns red, or you'll miss it. And who needs a blue L? I don't need that in my life. But if you're helping to keep that poor guy single for a bit longer, I guess it's a worthy trade-off. Regardless, in the 2600 game, not only does John Champol give you the better controls with fluid movement between cardinal directions, but he also manages to get the vegetable harvest in there. And that's a fun, high-scoring screen to reach. It kind of gives you this objective that not a lot of players get to see, you know? And on top of both of those things, the durations of the red and yellow letters have been lengthened. It's much more fair. All of this makes the 2600 version the best of all. I think I've proved my point. And I'm so proud that I remembered what it was. And thankfully, but ironically, there are no actual bugs in this game. Even given the 2600's playfield symmetry, with the border timer and the revolving doors mirroring each other, uh, it's as faithful to the original as it could possibly be. Now, as for the Intellivision conversion, it plays just fine. Graphically, however, it's not even faithful to the Insect Kingdom. It's certainly the version that looks least like the arcade game, or a maze with bugs in it, or a video game, but compared with the gameplay itself, of course, the graphics in any game are mere superficialities, and I normally love the Intellivision. In all respects, I go with the games, rather than the brand or whatever. Loyalty is purposeless, and the Intellivision has a lot of great games on it. Again, Ladybug plays great on that console, even though the graphics are worth taking a look at if you've never seen them, just to add a bit of humor to your day, you know? The playfield looks more like an Othello game board that Raggedy Ann exploded on. And I guess the word special just wasn't special enough to include in that version of the game. So, if you've only got an Intellivision at hand, and you want a vegetable harvest, you'll just have to turn off the console, and go on outside, and start planting. Anyway, guys, thank you for taking the time to create such an enjoyable show. And thanks also to Hyde. I know firsthand that editing can be a formidably big job. Editing can be a formidding job. Ed big job. Editing. And now, I'm looking forward to hearing Ferg's presentation of Wrinkles. So long, fellas. Thanks again for the awesome podcast.
Well, I am just shocked. And stunned. Hey, how about this before? I do have some uh, general content I'd like to add. General content? General content, uh, basically. General disarray. General disarray is a close relative of corporal punishment, so. And the right-hand man to, uh, to Professor Chaos. But, hey, you know what? Since we last recorded, a Thanksgiving has come and gone. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about my Thanksgiving. Um, typically, what uh, my wife and I do is we spend the Thanksgiving uh, extended weekend in New Jersey. That's where my wife hey, is hey, from. Hey, 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 but hey, 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 We try to be family friendly here. I, I, I know. I'm sorry. But we try to be. We keep telling people we're not always. Well, this is going to be one of these times when we're not. But uh, in fact, I am right now uh, demonstrating the state bird of New Jersey. So all of you who can hear that, you know, I'm sorry. We tell you we're not always family friendly. But, uh, you know, my wife's mother lives out in New Jersey. So we go out to uh, visit every Thanksgiving. So while I was there, I had a few hours on uh, uh, the night of uh, Black Friday. So what I did, I went over to Silverball Pinball Museum in Asbury Park while my wife and her mother were out doing some things in neighboring Ocean Grove. Silverball popped up probably about a year after I moved out of New Jersey, which is a good thing because if it popped up any earlier, um, I probably would have been spending a lot of time there. <laughs> uh, sorry, honey, I got to work late tonight. Uh, Silverball is a, it, it's really an arcade. They bill it as an arcade museum or a pinball museum. I'm guessing there might be some like league. I, I might have theorized before about how a lot of places you don't see what they call arcades, but they may have arcade museums, beer caves, etc. Because maybe if they bill themselves as gaming places, there are certain tax rules or something. I don't know. But this is a pinball museum. They have uh, dozens of pinball machines from way, way, way back, way even back before the Ferg, all the way up to fairly recent. Uh, they have a lot of electromechanical machines over there. Um, in fact, I thought of you, Jimmy G, because uh, they have, oh? well, listed on Orcade.com for Silverball are not one but two different Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, machines, which I understand is your favorite movie. Depending on my mood, it's either that or Tremors. They list the electromechanical and the digital versions. I played the electromechanical. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things occurred to me when I was playing that, uh, that electromechanical one. Is that the pinball board itself had nothing to do whatsoever with the movie. Really? All the movie did was provide the artwork on the uh, the head of the machine. And in fact, I noticed that that's true for just about any pinball game from, say, before the 80s. You might have, like, say, I, I'm just going to make this up off the top of my head. You might have, say, uh, a Charlie Brown pinball machine. The only instance of Charlie Brown will be right on the on the head of the machine, but on the actual huh. board, it's very generic. Like, hit this bumper to get 500 points and spell out the word win or whatever. So theming didn't actually seem to be a big thing, real theming, until probably about the 80s during the golden age of arcade playing. Now, you said they had two Close Encounters machines? There are two listed at Arcade.com, one electromechanical, one digital. I didn't see the digital one. I've seen the machine long, long time ago, but I could have sworn the one I saw actually had a lot to do with the movie on the actual board. Um, that might be so the digital I one. I wonder if maybe the original, the 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 one might be a prototype, uh, the one you played. It could be. Uh, I don't know. Because I remember correctly, even the one that I saw where it said Close Encounters of the Third Kind on the backboard, it didn't even use the movie logo. 
You know what? The, uh, I don't think it did. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of like um oh gosh, I can't th- think of the name of the shape, but it was it was uh they were like the the words were like large on one side and then as it moved toward the middle of the machine they're like kind of narrower. It didn't use the letters that were spelled out with vertical lines like in the movie logo. Well, whatever the case, I have a picture of it. In fact, I took a lot of pictures of the machines over there. I'll put, I'll put those in the uh, show notes uh, maybe someday. <laughs> um, but something else that I noticed about this machine that kind of I found very interesting. At the very front of the machine, like on the glass, mm-hmm. there is a label that said, you know, by Gottlieb, a division of Columbia Pictures. I did not yes. know about that. Yes, they were of Division of Columbia for a while. And in fact, I believe... Wait, wait. Or am I, is it Columbia? No, I'm thinking of Sega. Sega was a division of Paramount for a while. That is fascinating. Yeah, because uh, I I, I want to think that that's true. I have to double check that, which means I won't. <laughs> and uh, But I'm pretty sure... Sh- I didn't know that Gottlieb was a division of Columbia... I am almost certain that Sega for a time was a division of Paramount, but I believe Paramount uh, divested themselves of Sega. And of course, Atari at one point was a division of Time Warner. Yes, that's true. They were. Yes, they were. I just wonder Mm -hmm. what other what other gaming companies were divisions of uh, like film companies or related in such ways. It would. It would. uh, It would. It's weird thinking that Gottlieb of all companies was a subsidiary of a major studio yeah. because while they had uh, a lot of games, they were nowhere near the powerhouse of a Sega or Atari or Nintendo or uh, no. Midway. No. So that's, uh, that's kind of weird. Let me see here. Sega was once uh, owned by Gulf and Western. Aha, which is a Paramount company, I believe. Sega was uh, owned by Gulf and Western till 1984. It was owned by Bailey in 1984 huh. and CSK Holdings Corporation from 84 to 2004. And now it's owned by Sega Sammy Holdings. That's going to be my uh, lounge singer name, Sega Sammy Holdings. There you go. Or just Sammy Holdings. I like that. that w- that'll work. That'll work. So, uh, so yeah, in Silverball, I, it's one of those places where you pay, I believe, per hour and they cap it at a certain rate. Like I walked in, it was like probably about six or seven at night. And I said, no, it was actually closer to five or six. Now I think about it. And they said, how long, how long do you want to be here? I said, well, I plan to be there basically until you close. They said, okay, I'll be 15 bucks. So it's like, okay, cool. But yeah, they have a a pretty interesting selection of pinball machines. I didn't see uh, either of your favorites. I didn't see Terminator two or um, twilight zone. Oh, dang it. Those are great machines. I didn't see Ferg's favorite haunted house there either. I don't think their their goal was necessarily to have every conceivable pinball machine under the sun, um, especially some of the more common ones, I don't think. But in addition, they also had a pretty surprisingly decent selection of uh, video games, too, mostly core stuff. Like they had centipede and millipede and their centipede and millipede machines were configured really weird. Um, like centipede, I'm used to there being a bonus every 12,000 points. They have it set for 10,000 points. Millipede, I'm used to there being a bonus every 15,000 points, but they had it set for 12,000 points. And also I was kind of disappointed with their millipede machine because the DDT did not replenish. Once you use those three DDT things on the screen, they were gone for good for the rest of the game. I hardly ever saw the mosquitoes until, say, the attack waves. So basically, it seemed that their millipede is just a slightly glorified centipede. So I don't know what's what's up with that. But um, 
It might be because I noticed there were a lot of little kids there. They were having a birthday party or something, and there were a lot of screaming kids. So if they get a lot of kids in the place, they probably want to make it a little bit easier for them. That might be the the explanation. I left them a, I left them an email, but I never heard back just to get some clarification. Mm-hmm. They had Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, both of which were the Turbo variations. So I played Turbo hmm. Pac-Man for the first time ever. And um, something else there. They keep records of high scores there, but only just at that arcade. Like, they don't submit them to arcade.com or anything. It's just for house records there. They do it in an interesting way. They have records for, for male and female. And for each gender, they have different categories. You have 13 and under, 50 and over, and everybody else. I noticed that the everybody else record for their Turbo Miz Pac-Man was only 353,000, so I had to make short work of that. Guess who has the house high now, at least as of Black Friday? <laughs> Richie Knuckles? Close. Somebody else who uh, uh, who has a history in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, this guy, Sean Coe. So, <laughs> I only beat the record by 20,000, but still. And when, they, uh, when I reported it, the guy behind the counter said, okay, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you, um, are you 50 or over? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, no. But uh, one other cool thing about uh, something I, I really dug about Silverball is that above every machine, pinball machine and video game, mm-hmm. they have an eight and a half by 11 card that tells uh, a brief story about the machine, like how it came about, like the history of it. What I didn't like was they got Ms. Pac-Man wrong. Oh? First of all, they said Ms. Pac-Man was a Namco game. No, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't. And they said it was the first proper sequel to Pac-Man, which I'm going to say no, it wasn't. It was the first sequel, but I wouldn't call it the proper sequel because Namco didn't authorize it. So um, I sent an email over to them like, to set them straight, but never heard back. I don't know if they changed, if they updated the story or what, but yeah, what the hey. Still, I would definitely recommend checking out Silverball Museum. They are located on the boardwalk uh, right along the beach in Asbury Park. It's on the northern end close to, uh, close to Convention Hall. So uh, there you go. So where did you play the Silverball? From Soho down to Brighton. I must have played them all. Yeah, that's the second time we've done that joke. <laughs> that hasn't stopped us before. Yeah, especially because it was Asbury Park. Oh, you just need to build an extra long bridge, that's all. Yeah, even though Brighton and Asbury Park both border the same ocean, I guess that's kind of close, but oh well. And by an interesting coincidence, today on Orcade.com, well, every day they spotlight an arcade and a player Today's Arcade.com Arcade Spotlight is Silverball. Ah! We're recording this December 8th. It's like, what a coincidence! Hey, what a coinky-dink. Come on, that was my best Mark Hamill doing the voice of Joker impersonation. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that was certainly interesting. You want to know what I did over Thanksgiving weekend? No. Yeah, I did nothing, so... No was technically correct. Oh, okay. It was part of no. It was No was part of what I did. I did no thing. Well, why do you say we move on now? I say we move on now. Uh, Let's talk about a game. Let's talk about a game. Uh, Let's talk about Tapper, shall we? I see what you did there. See what I did there? I see what you did. (laughs) Okay, we got two really interesting games tonight and two... uh, Two favorites. I think I already know where we're going to rate both of these games. Oh, do you know? Yes, I do. But, hey, uh, let's talk about Tapper. This is a fun game. Tapper, you play the role of a bartender 
Uh, what you do is you gotta serve beer, or root beer in some cases, to the patrons of the bar. Uh, they come out from a door on one side of the screen, and you have to activate the control on the control panel, which I will get to that in a moment, what you're actually controlling, to serve them a beer. And when you serve them a beer, it slides them down the bar, and sometimes... Slides whom down the bar, the though? The patron. The patron down the bar, and sometimes out the door. Sometimes they will stop, in which case you have to serve them another beer. Now, if they don't slide out the door, they will send their beer mug all the way back down toward you, and you have to pick that up. If the patron reaches the end of the bar, the patron will pick you up and slide you down the bar, thus making you lose a life. Uh, the other way you can lose a life is if you A, serve one too many beers, or B, don't catch the mugs that are coming back down toward you. So those are three ways that you can die. Every now and then, a patron will leave a tip on the bar. You can run down the bar to grab it. But when you do, some dancing girls will come out at the top of the screen and they will dance and it will draw the attention of some of the bar patrons. And if it draws the attention, they are not paying attention to what's going on down the bar. So if you serve them a beer, it will slide right on past them. So you got to watch out for that. Personally, I never go for the tips. Just too much of a problem. The controls. Let's talk. Oh, there's a bonus round. Do tell. There are four different stages. There's an Old West bar. There is a sports bar. <laughs> Literally, it's in a stadium. Uh, there is a punk rock bar. And then there is finally a space bar where you're serving aliens. Each level has their own unique characters. Sports bar, you got people. Wait, so there's a space bar. Is there also a shift key where you serve beer? I'm hitting backspace right now. Okay. So in the uh, in the sports bar, uh, you'll have people spinning basketballs and, and swinging tennis rackets and that sort of thing. In the punk bar, they'll have mohawks and they will have <laughs> they will have um, uh, diaper pins through their head. Uh, it's kind of kind of funny. Miscellaneous piercings, I guess. Piercings, and then the space bar, just a bunch of different aliens, and they're all all kind of cutesy and all that. And um, after every level, you know what? Let's call each round a tavern. They have a they have a Old West Tavern, they have a Sports Tavern, they have... That way, and each tavern has several different several different bars that you got to go through. Several different levels. After you've finished, say, the, the Old West Tavern, you get a bonus round. There are six cans of a beverage on the, on the end of the bar, and a person dressed up like Hamburglar... Rubble, rubble! Even though he's a robber, uh, will shake one of the cans up. Then he pounds on the bar, and he shifts them all. It's uh, it's like Russian roulette. It's called the beer hunter, eh? Oh! <laughs> I win. I win every Take time. Off. Wethead. Towel off. Way to go. Okay. You hoser. The implication is the impact of him pounding on the bar makes the cans kind of like whirl around and exactly. get mixed up. And you have to select the beer. I'm sorry. I said he shook one beer. No, no. He shakes five beers. He shakes five yes. beers. You have to select the one that he hasn't shook. That's actually quite the opposite of the Beer Hunter game that they play at uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie play on the Great White North album. And uh, that, in a nutshell, is the game. Now, getting back to the controls, you have a four-way joystick. As I said, you can run down the bar to pick up tips. You can also run down the bar to pick up mugs before they reach the end of the bar. Uh, you can run back and forth. If you're halfway down the bar and you see that a patron is getting close to the end of the bar, 
you don't have to run all the way back to the tap on the side of the screen. You can just push up or down, and it'll put you right at the tap, which I thought was a very nice uh, nice feature for the game, because this game gets... This is a hard game. This game oh, gets yeah. this game gets fast and furious, if I might, uh, if I might say that. This this game is also extremely addicting for quite a few reasons. We'll post the link to a video of the gameplay of this game if you've never seen it. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners probably have, but you can't experience this. You you really have to see this because it sounds like it could be easy, but uh, when you get four or five people waiting at the bar and there and all of the screens are kind of like in a um, modified first person perspective I'll say which means that the bar at the bottom of the screen is longer than the one at the top the one at the top is shorter that's right well wow. yeah, yes yeah, if you cool. get four of them up there you're gonna have to serve them beers get them out the door real fast and they're not not all the patrons are gonna just take one beer you'll serve them one They'll drink it, send the bug back down, you'll serve them another. Sometimes you can, you'll serve them two, three times before they leave the room. Yeah, generally, the closer they are to the end of the bar, the more they're going to drink. Yeah, yeah, it's going to take them more to get out of the bar, which I've got some friends that drive for Uber. I'm just throwing that out there. So, one of the most interesting features of this game, I had said that to serve a beer, you push the control. I didn't explain what the control was. Oh, do tell. This, I will go on record as saying that I think this game has the most unique control of any video game ever in the classic era. You actually, you don't have a button to serve the beer. You actually have a beer tap, like you see in a bar. When they pour you a a tall, cold, frosty one, and they pull that lever down, fills up your mug... That's what's on the machine. It's an actual beer tap. And there are two of them, too. So And there are two. There's a left or a right hand, so you can play however you're comfortable. And that, I think, is another reason this game is fondly remembered, because everybody remembers that beer tap that you have to pull to serve the beer. It is one of the most unique controls ever, if not the most unique control ever, at least in the classic era, possibly of all time. In the in uh, in video gaming, you're talking arcade video arcade gaming. Video I can gaming, think of yes. one that's more interesting that I don't think ever actually worked. Do you have anything you want to say about Tapper before we go on? Because we we don't normally talk about cabinets of the machines that we're reviewing, but we have to talk about this one. Yeah, we we should. Yeah, this is a really cool cabinet. Something that I want to add, and I'm surprised you didn't mention this, the most obvious, there are different variations of Tapper. Yes, there is. The most obvious one is... The one that you see in the arcades is called Root Beer Tapper. The one you see in adult establishments is just called Tapper. And the one in the adult establishments has a product placement for Budweiser. But there's another one. There's another version of this game. In Japan, uh-huh. uh, there's a version of it with the beer Suntory. S-U-N-T-O-R-Y, I believe is how it's spelled. Yes. I was reading something earlier about it where it said that uh, it was rumored that uh, Sega, who I had heard actually had distribution rights for Tapper, uh, is the one that changed the beer name to Suntory, but uh, Sega denies that they did that. So, huh. but the ROM is out there that says Suntory. So, there you are with that. And also, something I want to add is that home. there are home versions of the game. Now, Root Beer Tapper, your character isn't a bartender, so to speak, but a soda jerk. He's dressed a little bit differently. The home versions are actually just Tapper, but 
instead of the bartender, it is the soda jerk who's the character on those versions. Yeah, there's uh, some more version. Um, let's uh, let's let's hold off on talking on the home versions more because there's a little more we need to talk about the home versions. But we haven't even really touched too much more on the cabinet. One thing about the game, it's got your sound effects. It's got some pretty cool sound effects with uh, and when the guys too. drinking the beer, and it's in stereo. They tested the game at a bar in the Chicago area. I believe it was uh, Andy Caps, something like that. And um, the original prototype for the game actually had belches <laughs> in the sound. Uh, when somebody That's would drink awesome. a beer, they would belch, but they kept it out of the game for some reason. I would so love to play that because, you know, we're nothing if uncouth over here. You know what? So- and, and because we're so prepared, I did see four different ROMs for Tapper. I saw Tapper, which is the Budweiser version, of course. Mm-hmm. I saw the Root Beer Tapper. I saw the um, Suntory ROM. And I also saw one that said just alternate. I didn't play the alternate one. I'm curious as to... I wonder if that one might have the belches. So that's interesting. Uh, And now we can finally get to the cabinet, because there's some interesting stuff with this. Uh, On the side of it, it'll say Tapper or Root Beer Tapper or whatever. The side art of Tapper is really, really cool. It's like old-timey sepia drawing. And what's really cool is there's... I I really want to talk about this game sometime. Also designed by Marvin Glass and Associates, called Timber. Ah, yes. Which uses essentially the same character... And it also has a very similar cabinet in terms of the graphics on it. It has like a sepia tone, old timey drawing on it. And what's really awesome is it Galloping Ghost. They have these two cabinets back to back, like lined up against each other. I took a picture of it. I'll post that in the show notes too. The machine has, uh, I don't remember if it had it in the arcade, but I know in the, the uh, I don't remember if Root Beer Tapper had this, but I know Tapper had this. Uh, they had places where you could to put your drink on the machine and it wasn't actually on the control panel it was a thing that kind of like hung out over the side kind of like one of those things that used to hang on the window in your car you could put your drink in there and that's kind of what it has and the cabinet has a brass footrest on the bottom like it's like a it's like a full bar experience with this machine it is one of the most unique cabinets out there yeah, and I've played the root beer tapper at Yestercades in New Jersey, but I never noticed. I noticed that on the tapper machine over at Galloping Ghost, but... Yeah, I don't know if root beer tapper has it or not, but uh, it's been a long time since I've actually seen a root beer tapper. Root beer tapper was all over when I was younger, and now when you go to the uh, when you go to, uh, go to the arcades, a lot of them, well, not a lot of them, but the few that I've been to nowadays, uh, when they have a tapper machine, they don't have root beer tapper, they just have tapper. It's, I'm, I'm assuming that Tapper is the more the one that's more in demand uh, because of the Budweiser and because of all of the little flourishes. But uh, if anybody could correct me on the root beer Tapper to see uh, if it has the uh, has the drink holder or the brass footrest, let us know. Once again, feedback bait. And um, <laughs> I have a confession to make. I didn't know about Tapper. Until sometime in the night. In fact, I think I think it was sometime after. I think you had told me you had always referred to the game Tapper, and I was like, "What's Tapper?" I mean, I'm only familiar with Root Beer Tapper. I didn't know back in the Ferg that Root Beer Tapper and Tapper were separate games. Well, or that they were two different titles. I only knew of Root Beer Tapper. As I've said before, we've talked about different Rob versions. Yeah. 
Technically, the only thing different between Tapper, Root Beer Tapper, is one has Budweiser, one has Root Beer. Root Beer, yeah, so then younger people can play it. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's, it is the same. Slightly different yeah, sounds. Slightly different graphics. It's the same game, but it's got these, just these really not that big changes to it. Yeah, and part of that difference is that uh, when you're doing the Beer Hunter uh, bonus round, is that Tapper uses the when you say Bud jingle in the background. Yes. Um, Root Beer Tapper, I, I'm not familiar with the music. I don't know if oh, it's... Oh, you know uh, what it says? Um, you, you're saying uh, about the about the jingle on the on the bonus round. And it, it yes. just occurs to me, on the bonus round, if it's Root Beer Tapper and you select the correct can, it'll say, this one's for you. If it's Tapper, it'll say, this bud's for you. Yep. Totally forgot about that. I know that uh, Rick Hakaro, who is uh, basically the resident musician... Uh, over at Marvin Glass and Associates, who developed the game, uh, he he was in charge of making the music for the game. I don't know if Root Beer Tapper uses an original piece of music for the bonus round or if it's uh, another, say, pre-written song. Oh, Susanna and Buffalo Gals is used. The Dancing Girls, by the way, they dance to Can Can. So that's uh, another game we talk about that uh, uses yeah. Can Can. Yeah, it's by got the Can Can. J- Jacques Offenbach. Jacques Oh, and interesting is that the music, by the way, was developed on um, a unique uh, music computer system called a Synclavier. I don't know if it's pronounced Synclavier or Synclavier, but it's a Synclavier 2 developed Mm -hmm. by the New England Digital Corporation over in Norwich, Vermont. So that's what they used for that. And the machine has its own floppy disk drive and stuff. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating. And I'm just I was just uh, going over here. Now, Tamper didn't get a whole lot of home uh, home releases. Coleco made a version of it for the ColecoVision. Uh, Sega released it on the Atari 2600. It also was on the, apparently the 5200, the Atari 8-bit, Commodore 64, Apple II, and the IBM PC. Now, I actually own both the ColecoVision version and the Atari 2600 version. Of course, my Coleco Adams hasn't worked for years, so I can't play the ColecoVision one. Uh, anymore, but the the ColecoVision one is one of the better is one of the better uh, titles for the ColecoVision console, in my opinion. And in my humble opinion, not counting any of the homebrews that are quite frequent and quite high quality on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, Tapper on the Twenty Six Hundred is, in my opinion, the best arcade translation on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred from it the original really from the original lineup. Yeah, it's it doesn't have everything. Like it doesn't have you can't collect a tip and the dancing girls don't distract the customers, but it's still really, really good. Yeah, and the Atari Twenty I don't know about the other home versions other than uh, the ColecoVision. The ColecoVision is actually root beer tapper. It's tapper on the twenty six hundred. And instead of Budweiser or Root Beer, it's got Mountain Dew product placement. Uh, I couldn't tell you about the other uh, home versions, whether uh, if it's root beer or uh, Mountain Dew. I'm assuming probably not Budweiser, unless it's a homebrew. But, uh, you know, in doing research for this episode, get this. I did not know this. In um, 2011, Warner Brothers Digital Distribution announced that they were going to be doing a modern reinterpretation of Tapper called Tapper World Tour. And you know who's going to be involved in this? Um, The Beatles. We've talked about a game by this person. Uh, the Beatles. Don Bluth. Don Bluth, refresh my memory. I know the name. Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair. Oh, right. Yeah, right. apparently he's got a game development company called Square One Studios, and they were working on Tapper World Tour. Uh, I do not know if that ever came out or not, 
But um, looks like it's a Apple iOS. So uh, yeah, I can't play it. I'm not a hipster. I don't own an Apple product. I own several Apple products, but believe me, I'm not a hipster. But uh, I want to look anyway. up uh, on YouTube for some uh, video of this because this sounds actually kind of interesting. Yeah. Because it's uh, it's it, it, it kind of sounds in a way kind of like uh, with some mechanics from Rampage World Tour, just with the the tapper, uh, and you can go around the world serving beers. That would be kind of cool to serve it and uh, ser- to play Tapper. Kankakee is drunk. <laughs> it would be, be kind of cool uh, playing this game in settings like an Irish pub or a German, uh, oh, yeah. or a German Brauhaus and uh, stuff like that. So I'm going to have to check that out. You know what? Speaking of different settings, something that I do want to mention, kind of going back to how we're talking about how you're basically serving at different taverns. One yeah. thing that really adds to the difficulty here. The old-timey saloon, the first round, and the stadium or picnic or what I, I think is they use picnic tables in that round, I think. All the basically the bars, if you will, are off to the right, or they're off to one side, and the tapper is off to the other side. Mm-hmm. I think the first round the bars are on the left, tappers on the right, second round, tappers on the left, and the bars are on the right. Mm-hmm. When you get to the punk round, the bar actually divides. Some of the bars are on the right, some of the bars are on the left, and yep. that just totally throws me off. That's when things get really crazy. If you just remember, if you push up or down, it'll take you to the tap on the level yeah. above or below you. Uh, that'll help out a little bit. You don't have to run all the way over to the other side. But yeah, it does get confusing because because you're so used to focusing on all the action starting from one side of the screen and slowly moving toward the other side. But yeah, that does definitely throw you off. This game is fiendishly difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's one of those, it's it's kind of, it's got the, um, the Atari 2600 Kaboom feel. Uh, what that is, yes, is that I you totally just start playing saying. it, and and after a while, you don't notice it. You just get into a groove, as it were. As it were? As it were? As it were? As it were. And um, you can just pretty much put yourself on autopilot after a while. And you're just serving beers, serving beers, serving beers. This is a Zen game, really, if you think about it, you know, if you if, if I might use that term, because you just zone out. You just you just you're just focused. And yeah. um, it's I don't, there's not a whole lot of arcade games that you can actually get lost like that in uh, maybe like Robotron. You could. Oh, boy. I found that at least the turbo version of Ms. Pac-Man. Absolutely. You could do mm-hmm. Especially and, if you can uh, nail down some sort of like okay, pattern, you know what? which is hard. Thinking about it, maybe that's not a fair thing to say, but uh, I, I would say it's more in-your-face in Tapper than other games, though, if I, if yeah, I might. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't talk about the scoring. Uh, it would no, help to know how to score. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, let's score! <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, serving a customer... Uh, depending on which level it is, if it is a cowboy from the first round, you get 50 points. If it is a athlete from the second round, seven po- uh, 75 points. If it is one of the punk rockers from the third round, it's 100, and you get 150 for every alien you serve. Uh, you pick up an empty mug, you get 100 points. You clear the level, you get 1,000 points. By the way, speaking of clearing a level, a little point-pressing thing I do, like on the very, very, very first round... I kind of slow things down so I can collect more points. If you end the like, it's really easy on the very first screen to just serve one, two, three, four beers and the round's over. I like to kind of let it build up a little bit so I can gain, so I can get score some more points. But uh, um, if you collect a tip, that's 1500 points. And 
if you win the bonus round, the inverse um, beer hunter game, which, by the way, is surprisingly easy. Uh, that's 3,000 points added to your score. And usually, I believe, you you get an extra life at 20,000 points. And if the machine is set for marathon settings, you get an additional lives every 60,000 points. An additional life for every 60,000? Yeah. The first one after 20,000, and then an additional one every 60,000 after that. I don't know if it's 60,000, like on the 60,000s or like say 20,000 and then 80,000 and 140,000. I'm not sure exactly what. I don't remember what the uh, point was. I think I've made it to two bonus lives at some point in my life. You're going to need all of the lives you can oh, in this game, yeah. as we're oh, saying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult, but it's one thing to have a game that's like difficult, you know, just to be difficult. This game is difficult. Horribly difficult. I would put it up there with some of the hardest of uh, of Williams games, but it's also one of the more fun games you're going to play in the arcade. Oh heck yes! And it's the it's the combination of the difficulty with the unique controls and the uh, the whimsical graphics. Yes. Uh, just the, it, once again, I mean, I referred to Gyrus previously, kind of as a kind of as a perfect storm game, and I would put Tapper. In that way, too. It's kind of a perfect storm. It's got everything really going for it. It's just just sim- quite simply one of the most fun games in the arcade. Yeah, and especially with the animations they put in. Like, if you clear a round, what'll happen is the tapper will kind of celebrate by maybe kicking... Uh, he'll pour himself a drink, and then yeah. he pours himself a drink, and then he throws the mug up. Sometimes he'll kick the mug with his foot, and the mug will smash. Sometimes and it'll it'll, hurt his uh, foot. he'll kick it, and he'll hurt his foot. Another time, or he'll throw it up, and it'll land on his head and smash. And other times, his head will go in it. And another time, he'll throw it up so high, he'll fly off the screen. He'll look at the screen, and he'll go, he'll do one of those moves like, what happened? And then a bird will come down from the, from the yeah. top I mean, of the screen and hit him in the head. You love those touches. Yeah, oh, yeah, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, is it has the uh, it has the dancers after you pick up a tip uh, in, the sports, uh, in, the, in the sports bar stadium round. Uh, they're cheerleaders and they're, they're they're different dancers in every round. I know I've seen them in the, uh, the space bar, but darned if I can remember. It's been so long since I've been able to get to that screen. I've I don't think I've ever gotten to that one. Uh, I've gotten to it. You know what? That, now that I think about it, I don't think it was ever in the arcade. It was always in the ColecoVision version, which I was pretty good at that one. I've, I've played almost exclusively in Mame. I think the, the highest I ever got on an actual arcade machine was May thirtieth this year at Galloping Ghost. I got forty eight thousand twenty five. I know I've gotten higher than that in MAME, but man, yeah. it is such a crazy hard game. I was playing this the other day. I only got to the first punk bar screen, and I was at 21,000 points or something like that. Mm. And the one thing you got to watch out for in this game... Snakes? Watch out for snakes. I've <laughs> uh, I've noticed, and I, and I had this theory about this. It takes two pulls on the tap to serve a beer. Yes. One to pour it and one to send it down the bar. And you get into a funk, you push two, push two. You really got to pay attention to how many times you're pushing that thing. Otherwise, you'll serve one too many beers. You know, if an unserved beer, and this is another way to die that I forgot to mention. If an unserved beer slides off the end of the bar toward the doors, you also lose a life that way. And you can't rescue it either. You can't run after it and catch it. you cannot rescue it. Even if you could catch it, it run it slides down the bar faster than you can run. And there's no way that you could warp around to the other side of the screen to get it either. So you can't catch it. And when you do that, you're like, oh, 
you don't even have to wait for the beer to smash. You already know what you did. Yep. And you really got to watch that. That's another thing that adds to the difficulty of the game. But what I really love, though, is that if that happens or if you're about to miss a glass that actually falls off the bar, if the round ends, it'll save your butt. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It does I do, do that. like when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. It happens more often than you would want it to, unfortunately. Going back to the Atari 2600 version, I was saying about how you, it takes two pulls on the tap to serve, to serve one to serve the beer and then one to send it down the bar. Uh, you can have as many beers on the bar as you can, as you want in the arcade version. Uh, I couldn't tell you on the ColecoVision version. It's been a while since a long time since I played that one. But on the Atari 2600 version, you really got to watch out for this, though. Because of the limitations in the in the 2600, it can only show, I believe, two beers on the bar at any time. So if you press the button twice to serve one, twice again to serve your second one, twice again, it will not serve that beer until the first of the two beers that you served has been drunk by a patron. It will remember your button press. It remembers really? your button press. If you press the button and you don't see anything, it's still going to serve that beer. You really got to watch out for that on the 2600 version. That's pretty much the only flaw in that otherwise excellent translation, in my opinion. Wow. Yes, check it out next time. I got to hook up my 7800. I haven't played it in a while. And pop. Uh, uh, for people that don't know, the Atari 7800 plays almost all Atari 2600 games without an adapter. So when I say I'm going to put ta- the 2600 version of Tapper in my 7800... No, I'm not playing a prank on you. No. I'm not playing a prank on you. Hey, 7800 is my favorite video game console. Oh, it is. It definitely is. And we're going to be talking about that more uh, later soon. on. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not this episode, but some other episode, maybe. Oh, indeed. So that's pretty much all I have to say about Tapper. This is an easy five, five continue game. There's just no question about it. You know what? I wasn't going to give it a five continue, but man, now that I reconsider it, I have to agree. It really is a five continue. It's one of those games that's frustratingly difficult, but it's not that kind of difficult that turns you away. Frustratingly difficult, but you don't mind. I love the sound on it. Uh, It's not too difficult for people like, say, Gregory Irway. You know who that guy is? Do tell. Do. Oh, wait, I got to do that in your voice. Do tell. There we go. That's better. Now, Mr. Irway, according to Orcade.com, has the world record in both marathon and tournament settings. And for the tournament settings, the record he has is 9 million. How the hell is that possible? 9,100,175, which he performed on June 4th, 2003, during Fun Spot 5, which I guess happened at Fun Spot. And according to Arcade.com, exactly two years later, on the marathon settings, which means that the game is set so you can keep getting bonus lives, bonus lives every so often, mm-hmm. um, he scored 3,162,125 at Fun Spot 7. I find it weird that his tournament settings, which means no bonus lives, really, maybe just one and that's it. Mm-hmm. He scored three times as much almost. That's interesting. Oh, one thing, uh, and this just occurred in this... I was just uh, double-checking some of our sources here, but uh, totally forgot about this. Tapper is one of the games that was featured in Wreck-It Ralph. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, fairly was, early on in the Tapper game. Was actually... Or early on in the movie, uh, Wreck-It Ralph is, uh, goes to get a drink, and uh, 
he talks to the uh, the <laughs> he talks to the bartender from Tapper in the uh, yeah yeah the, the bartender from Tapper makes a couple of appearances in that movie and the bartender from Tapper is voiced by a very famous uh, animation voiceover artist Maurice Lamarche who also did what for those who are not in the know yes he did the voice of the brain from Pinky and the Brain he's also done a heck of a lot other voices. He also provided the voice of uh, Orson Welles in Ed Wood. He did? Yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio was the actual act, the, the actor who appeared on screen, but he lip-synced to... I forgot. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. The, the, the character of the brain on Animaniacs was actually based on Orson Welles, so... Yes. Oh, and by the way, something I found interesting going back to uh, going back to our topic at hand is that both Arcade.com and Twin Galaxies have entries, separate entries for Tapper and Root Beer Tappers if they were different games. Fascinating. And Arcade.com says that Paul Kermizian has the Root Beer Tapper world record performed uh, December 11th, 2010 at <laughs> Richie Knuckles with a score of 856,175. Which, even that, I think, is not realistic. We've got to make a special trip out to New Jersey sometime to go to Richie Knuckles. That just settles it. I was just in New Jersey. Yeah, I know you were, but you didn't go to Richie Knuckles. <laughs> I didn't go to Richie Knuckles, no. Twin Galaxies, for Tapper, for the marathon record, they say William Rosa, which was verified October 28th, 2003, scored 10361550 Now, what's interesting here is that Twin Galaxies, for the tournament settings of tapper lists what gregory Irway has for arcade.com's marathon setting so someone's got it mixed up and i'm guessing it's arcade.com considering that that an arcade.com gregory Irway's tournament settings is a hell of a lot higher than the marathon settings so that's weird and for root beer tapper twin galaxies says that uh, greg Irway again has the world record for marathon settings for root beer tapper verified may 20th 2003 at one million nine hundred and fifty nine thousand two hundred and for tournament settings of root beer tapper john core verified march 20th 2004 77,150. oh man i'll bet i could beat that one. <laughs> uh. oh well well, you just do that, Mister. Do you? Just I will see what we did. See what we did there. <laughs> that's that's <for> Phil. <laughs> uh, there's a special dedication uh, to. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. We we pick on him too. Well, we don't pick on him enough. Yeah, he he's been such a good sport. He has. He has. Which means we're doing something wrong. I I know. I know. But uh, I I don't really have much more to say, if anything else more to say about uh, Tapper or Root Beer Tapper or Sunchuro Tapper whatever the heck Sun that other one was called so there you go Sunpori so why don't we move on uh, wow that was kind of a racist thing I did just there didn't wasn't it with where I, way I pronounced Suntory mm. Suntory yeah all right well so what do we move on to you know what we got two games one of two games we could talk about and uh, we're only going to talk about one of them. So we could either talk about food fights or we could talk about Charlie Chuck's food fight. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Hmm. Well, we'll be back really soon with our decision. And we're back. It occurs to me that they're actually the same game. Just everybody calls it food fight when the actual name is Charlie Chuck's food fight on the marquee. Oh, pshaw. Uh, But on the logo on the screen, it's just food fight. And 
This game doesn't require as much explanation as Tapper, but it's no less interesting. What it is, what it was, and what it shall be, uh, you have you control Charlie Chuck. And he starts out on the right hand of the screen, and what you have to do is eat the ice cream cone on the left hand side of the screen. Oh, that's easy. That's easy. Ah, but wait, mister, there is a problem. There are four chefs that will pop up out of holes in the play field between you and the ice cream cone. And you have to get past them to eat the ice cream cone. And also on the field are holes that you can fall into and die. And there is food that the chefs can pick up and throw at you. And if you get hit by the food, you die. However, you can also pick up that food and throw it at the chefs. There are four chefs. There is Oscar, Angelo, Jacques, and Zorba, the four chefs in the game. You only have a certain amount of time in which to eat the ice cream cone. You have to get it before it melts because it's constantly melting. And once it's gone, you lose. And whenever you touch a chef and whenever food hits you, all the food on the screen comes and hits you and just smashes all over you. Uh, the holes can be open or closed, by the way, and these holes are where the chefs appear from, which I believe I already said. You can walk over them if they're closed. Uh, you'll fall into them if they're open. I just avoid them altogether, whether they're open or closed, just because it's easier. And there are several different types of food in the game that you can throw. You have bananas, which spin as you throw them. I believe they go across the screen. You have peas. You grab a handful of peas and you can throw them. They spread out like buckshot, but they don't go very far. Tomatoes, which just fly across the screen. And my favorite, the watermelon. Every fifth stage is a watermelon stage. I believe on the stages that end in five, the screen is nothing but watermelon. On every screen that ends with a zero, there's only one watermelon. The thing about the watermelon versus the other food, all the other food sits in piles. And every time you pick up a banana, say, it'll remove one from the pile. And once all the bananas in the pile are gone, that's it. You could camp out on a piece of watermelon and just throw watermelon at everyone and just pepper the screen, so to speak. But I've never had pepper on watermelon. I have to try that. Uh, you could pepper the screen with watermelon and you will never run out of watermelon. That's why people love the watermelon screens because you oh, never yeah. run out of ammo. I usually go to the watermelons closest to the ice cream cone and just fling watermelon yep. pieces at all the chefs right until the last drip of the ice cream cone. And that's cone. one other thing. Before you eat the ice cream cone, pick up a piece of food, whether you're going to throw yes. it or not, because you carry that over to the next screen. When you start the very first screen, you nothing in your hand. You have to pick up a piece of food and throw it. If you eat the ice cream cone with a piece of food in your hand, you carry that piece of food with you to the next screen and you start with it so you have a piece of ammunition that you can use right at the beginning of the next screen. It's a little piece of strategy from me to you. And that is the basics of Food Fight. Now, I believe this machine has the button on each side of the joystick. When you start the game up, you can... You can uh, a lot of Atari titles were famous for allowing you to uh, select levels uh, that you want to start on. Tepes did that. Millipede did that. Uh, Food Fight is no different. Of course, Food Fight is actually licensed from GCC, the General Computer Corporation, who also created the 7800 for Atari. Uh, because of a little lawsuit Atari filed against GCC, because GCC was putting speed-up chips in Missile Command and taking credit for the machine. 
Uh, Atari sued him for millions of dollars. They settled out of court, and they actually became a contractor of Atari. And many of yep. Atari 2600's best titles, best arcade conversions, are actually GCC titles. Or not titles, but conversions. I don't think they were actually contracted by Atari. I think they were actually considered contractors of Warner, and they were assigned to work with Atari. Entirely possible. Uh, a little bit of semantics, but entirely possible. So this is technically a GCC game. A GCC did create one more game for Atari, and that is Quantum, which is a vector game, kind of in the same vein as uh, the arcade game Kicks, which is another one we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about. We bring up a lot of games we haven't talked about. And uh, yeah. I really want to get to Quantum sometime, because that's a fun game, but it's kind of hard to play at home. So that is very much uh, Food Fight. The one thing about Atari's arcade cabinets versus other companies we don't really talk about the cabinets, but uh, they're generally pretty generous with the side art. Oh, yeah. Food Fight was art from top to bottom. And the only reason I bring up Food Fight's cabinet is because the side of the cabinet shows Charlie Chuck holding a pie. Oh, that's another uh, that's another food I totally forgot about. There are pies in the game also. You can't have a game like this without pies. No. You can't throw food without pies. There is, uh, on the side art, uh, Charlie Chuck's holding up a pie, getting ready to throw it at the chefs but it's the uh, the logo is kind of rounded whereas most cabinets just the top of the cabinet is just the the top of the side is the same as the top of the cabinet this actually extends up over the top of the cabinet uh, a little bit just so the uh, actual wood on the cabinet follows the art of charlie chuck which is kind of cool you don't see that very often you do see it and uh, so i thought that was pretty cool it has a pretty unusual joystick, which makes it really kind of hard to emulate at home. It's, I don't remember exactly, but I believe it's a 64 direction joystick. You really can throw stuff in tons of different angles in this game. Yeah, I got some details about that that I'll get into uh, in a moment or two. Yes, please. Actually, why don't you please do that now? Yeah, I think I told you earlier today, I found a lot of really cool stuff about Food Fight. In fact, there are two sources I'm going to throw links to in the show, in the show notes. Uh-huh. One is to, I was really thrilled to see this, is that you can, there's a, there was a magazine out in the early 80s, published right here, uh, well, not here, 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 but it was published in Skokie, Illinois, which is just a couple of miles north of where I am right now. It's called Joystick, J-O-Y-S-T-I-K. We've mentioned it a couple of times before yes. in this podcast, I didn't realize actually. it was out of Skokie. Yeah, neither did I until recently. I was like, oh, no way. Uh, you know what? I have, to, video I have to take thing. back something I said about the cabinet. Uh, I was thinking uh, the art was a, a little bit, uh, the, the side of the cabinet was, uh, the shape was more of a bizarre, weird shape than uh, normal cabinets. I was actually wrong on that. There you go. Oh, and that's something else I want to talk about. Uh, the side, there was also, I, I know this is really backtracking, but I had to basically like have a come to Jesus moment with someone on Atari age about this. He was kind of complaining Hallelujah, about Underground. You are healed. Oh, I'm sorry. He was saying, you know what? I was kind of disappointed with Underground Retrocade. And one of the things he said about was, you can't even see the, see the side art on the games, which I immediately pounced. I was like, um, Bub, did you see the row of Atari games there? Because they have, um, at Underground Retrocade, they have the Atari games specifically positioned sideways. or at, an specifically angle, yeah, positioned so you can see the at art. An angle. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So you can see the art there. One thing I like about so, Underground yeah, it, Retrocade is they actually have, I believe, all of their games kind of grouped by manufacturer. In a way, they're by, they're like, the, all the Atari games are, are in one area, and all the well, Williams games are in one area. And then the upper, the second floor of the place is uh, some of the games that were later 
uh, later on. Classic era stuff, main floor, later stuff, the second floor. As Scott told us, second floor, post-crash. Yes. Which is why you'll see Pac-Mania on the second floor up there. Yes. Because it's an Atari game, it's a Pac-Man game, but it's not grouped with the other Pac-Man games. Yes. So anyway, because it's post-crash. But anyway. Continue. Now, what I was saying before is I'm going to link to Joystick. All issues of Joystick. There are only like nine of them, which surprised me. Joystick was a great magazine. I, I enjoyed remember it. My mother bought me a copy once. The September 1983 edition has a nice article about Food Fight and fascinating reading. And so I'll post a link to that. Archive.org has all the issues up there for free. So I'll post a link there. And the other thing I'm going to post a link to is American Arcade Museum, which is what has the Fun Spot Arcade. Mm-hmm. Their website has an interview with Jonathan Hurd, who was the creator of Food Fight. And there's some fantastic information in there. And uh, some of which I'm going to talk about right now. My notes are kind of random here. But uh, what happened was the reason Food Fight existed is that Jonathan Hurd, he hung out in arcades. He saw people playing games like Tempest and some other games that were kind of violent. And he wanted to come up with some idea for a game that uh, was different and not quite violent and maybe had a little humorous slant to it and could appeal to both male and female gamers. Hmm, Where have we heard that before? (laughs) And one thing he thought of was, okay, well, a lot of these games have fire buttons, but what else can you do with a button besides fire? And he's like, well, you know, I, I like football. Maybe you can throw something with it, but what can you throw? Oh, you know what? Food. You can throw food. So he came up with the idea for a food fight game, and he submitted that idea to his team at GCC on January 4th, 1982. And he said that pretty much everybody on the development team over there had a pretty good hand in creating the game and uh, making all these uh, nice little suggestions and changes and things. Uh, One of the things on there was there's a high score table on food fight, as there is with most video games. Mm -hmm. And the original title of it was just something simple. It was like high scorers or food fight high scorers or something. Mm -hmm. One of the other developers over there by the name of Mike Feinstein, he said, you know what? Let's let's not call it something so boring. Let's call it something, you know, whimsical, like fabulous food flingers. And that is what it actually says now on the high score table of the game. Oh, wow. I never caught that. A couple of hardware designers, Tom Westberg and Larry Dennison. Uh, Roland Janberg um, had a little bit of creative contribution to it, and he wrote uh, wrote uh, a good chunk of the code. And this is interesting. The original prototype for Food Fight was done on a converted Pac-Man machine. Jonathan Hurd and a guy named Bruce Burns did that prototype, and Pac-Man, and this is one time we're going to get a little bit technical here. Pac-Man, as many of you know, is based on a Z80 or Z80, if you're not from the United States, CPU. The thing is, though, when Tom Westberg did his version of the hardware, it was based off of the Motorola 68000, Mm -hmm. which was brand new at the time. Um, It's what powered the Sega Genesis, the Amiga, the uh, Atari ST computers. Um, So it was a 16-bit processor. And one thing about the Motorola 68000 was that it would allow up to 32 stamps, which we sometimes call sprites. Mm -hmm. And that was unheard of at the time. And they actually used up all 32 of those stamps for Food Fight. There's one for Chuck. There's one for each of the chefs. The flying food has its own stamp, sprite, whatever. And so what happened was they actually had to take the Z80 code and convert it so it'll work on 68000. 
And the thing about the 68,000 that was a huge advantage was that you could actually code a 68,000 using C, the C programming language. You couldn't do that with a Z80. Mm. So they were able to do that. that. Uh, They had a little bit of a problem with the C compiler. So what they did was for code that the C compiler couldn't handle very well, they redid in 68,000 assembly language. Other people involved, there was Patty Goodson, who they considered to be the resident musician at GCC. She wrote the music in the food fight, including the... In- we didn't talk about the instant replay. No, we she didn't. Wrote the music I was for just that. thinking about that. That's like one of the big yes, features. tell us about the instant replay. I don't remember exactly what it is, how it is, but if you have multiple close calls in the game, as soon as you eat the ice cream cone you will get an instant replay of that level. And it's fascinating because it has this background music uh, that's, you know, that's playing, uh, and you can just sit there and just watch the, the thing, you know? You don't touch the controls or anything. Just watch it and just, just kind of just looking at it and go, yeah, I pretty much did that. Yep. You know, as you buff your fingernails on your shirt it as I'm doing really right cool. now. And uh, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't matter how long uh, how long the level was or how short it was, the music on the instant replay always ends at an appropriate spot when you eat the ice cream cone, which I thought was pretty cool. That is one of the more unique features of this game. I, th- I can't think of any... I think maybe there was one other game that had an instant replay on it, but darned if I can think of what it was. But uh, that was quite the unique feature. And um, Feedback bait! Oh, yes, feedback bait. And I know I'm jumping ahead of ourselves here, but the uh, Atari 7800 version of Food Fight also has the instant replay. Yes, it does. And some years ago, somebody disassembled the code to try to see what triggers the instant replay. Oh, I replay. remember this, yes. Mm-hmm. And from what I remember, at least the 7800 version, I don't know about the arcade version, but the 7800 version, I think there was a combination of things. I think, first of all, the instant replay would only happen like on every... It would only happen on levels that were divisible by four. So every four, like on a fourth, eighth, twelfth, etc. And it would be triggered depending on if there were one or more close calls. Also, if the length of time that you took clearing the level when you speed it up at the instant replay speed was like in in synchronization with one of the Mm -hmm. edit points in the music so that it could cut to the final little coda of the music. So there's like a whole bunch of things going on that had to match for the 7800 version to have an instant replay. I think the arcade actually is different because of the music thing. I think it uh, handles the music differently. Uh, I could be I'm wrong sure with that. I'm sure it does. But, uh, but yeah, that's a cool feature. Well, and speaking of the music, every level begins with a little tune called Mess Call, which is a bugle call that basically means it's mealtime. And this is interesting. I didn't know it, but Mess Call has oh. lyrics, uh, apparently. Soupy, soupy, soupy without a single bean. Coffee, coffee, coffee without a speck of cream. Porky, porky, porky without a streak of lean. Take that for whatever it's worth. Those of you who say go to uh, Galloping Ghost, the Barcade in New York, or uh, Logan Hardware, or wherever else they have a food fight, which is only 13 locations listed in arcade.com, Loudly sing along with the mess call theme, and sure, people will love you for that. Anyway, just to give a little bit more, this is a lot, but man, there's a lot, and I'm leaving out a lot too, but going back to uh, how the original prototype of uh, Food Fight was done on a converted Pac-Man machine, obviously it was the Pac-Man joystick that was used to control Chuck, but they wanted to make things really dynamic so you could throw and move in any direction, so what they did was they took off the joystick and put a roller on there so you could literally roll like move or throw in any direction. Oh. 
So you would adjust the roller and then hit the hit a move button to move in that direction or hit the throw button to throw in that direction. Wow, that sounds complicated. It really does. So they didn't do that, but something else they considered was using a trackball or maybe two joysticks like, say, Robotron. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on a second. Hold on. This week in Robotron. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Had to put that in there there. <laughs> and uh, something else that I found really fascinating, and it's unfortunately this didn't work out because it could have been really awesome. For one prototype machine that they had with public, te- they had public testers use. Mm-hmm. They found a plastic banana and they epoxied it onto the joystick. Your controller was a was a plastic banana. That's not a banana. <laughs> oh! <laughs> but they found out that uh, the weight of the banana on top of the joystick was a little bit too much for the mechanisms underneath to be able to handle it. The joystick itself is analog. Okay. And that's why you can pretty much move in any direction you want. Okay. It's uh, self-centering analog. So that's what that is all about. Something else I wanted to I wanted to throw in that I also found was uh, interesting was that one of the earlier ideas they had was that there would be an animated audience on the screen. And they're like, hey, you know what? If we're going to put an audience, we might as well have this set in a Roman Colosseum. But the developers at GCC found that if they did that, the audience would take up too much space on the screen. They needed as much space as they could get. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know what? Let's not do that. Something else they plan to do. Well, what happens is at the end of the level, when you eat the ice cream cone, mm-hmm. for every piece of food you have left on the screen at the end of the level, you get 100 points. And what happens is at the end of the level, each one of those pieces of food basically throws itself up at the top at your score score, as it gets counted Mm -hmm. out. The original plan was to have an animated maid come up on the screen and clean up all the food, but they scrapped that idea for whatever reason. And finally, one more thing I got to say about the earlier versions of prototypes and everything. Mm -hmm. The prototypes were tested out in Framingham, Massachusetts at an arcade called Fun and Games. And Jonathan Hurd, the main developer, what he would do is he would hang out there and watch people play it and come up with ideas how to refine it. Like basically based on how people were playing it, what their comments on it and all that. So that was pretty cool. And on March 21st, 1983, the final ROM was shipped to Atari. There's a whole lot of other interesting stuff about that uh, from uh, American uh, Classic Arcade Museum that I'll put a link to in the show notes. It's really, really fascinating. Oh, did you know about the Easter egg? Uh, on the arcade or the 7800? Oh, uh, I guess the arcade. Because there's an Easter egg on the 7800, which I don't remember how to trigger it, but uh, there is, I have triggered it in the past. But do tell. I don't know about the arcade one. <laughs> According to Jonathan Hurd, there's only one Easter egg in the arcade food fight. If you get to the high score table and you get to enter your initials, here's what you do. You actually enter a backspace seven times. And then you enter J, A, and H, which are Jonathan Hurd's initials. If you do that, what happens is his monogram shows up. Kudos to GCC. They really went all out to put all kinds of ideas in this game. It's really amazing what they did. And if I might just uh, interject here about the Atari 7800 uh, Food Fight Easter egg. Phil the No Square. uh, No Square. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't swear, so he is a square. No, Phil the No Swear Gamer actually has a video on YouTube on how to bring it up. Uh, This was actually, the Easter egg was found in, wow, way back in 06. uh, Somebody was disassembling it. 
uh, ran in the code through a disassembler. They were tracking the code, and hey, it's kind of easy to get to. Play one game up to at least level 23. Uh, after that game, on the level select screen, select level 23. And then you hold the pause button on the console, and then you go up, down, right, left, up, down, right, left. If you do that, it should display the message. Not that hard. Level 23. This game is, like Tapper, has one of the more interesting, uh, is, is one of the more interesting arcade games just from a development and play standpoint. Uh, the graphics are, are cartoony, but, uh, you know, they're sparse. There's not a lot of graphics. Uh, what's on there is fairly colorful, but it's mostly a black play field with a, a blue border around it. Mm-hmm. But it is a fun game. The, the sound effects are excellent, and the instant replay is worth dropping a token here or there in, you know, for just to try to, tr- to you know try to trigger that thing. Talk about the home versions. We talked about the 7800. There was only one other home version of this game, uh, one other official home version of this game on the co- classic consoles, and that was the Atari XE computers or Atari XE game system. I've played both the se- I own the 7800 version and the XE version. Uh, the 7800 version of Food Fight is the reason to buy an Atari 7800. I was about to say that. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's easily the quote-unquote killer app for the 7800. The Atari XE version? Don't like it. I, I, think, the 70, I think the Atari XE version is kind of trash. Well, I mean, my kids, it's a different hardware. It's a different hardware. The, the Atari 7800 can handle... A hundred sprites or stamps, as it were, on the screen at a time, whereas the Atari XE is just Atari's computer and it has a much, much lower sprite limitation. The graphics aren't as sharp. It has a lower graphic resolution, and I, I find it's choppier. It has it's it plays choppy, whereas the 7800 version is smooth as silk. They call it the XE version. Does that mean it only actually works on, say, the Atari XE game console and the 65 and 130 XE computers? It will work on... Because I haven't tried that it, wor- it, it will work on any of the Atari computers, I believe, that have 64 megabytes of RAM in it. Which mine does. So it should work on yours. Oh, I'm still going to try it. Still, I, don't, I think I'm going to be disappointed, though. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed with that one. It'll make you appreciate the 7800 version just that much more. And, of course, there's uh, the, way, the ways to score points in this game. The first time you hit a chef, you get 100 points. And then every additional chef after that, you get another, you get an additional 100 points. So first chef is 100 points, second chef is 200 points, um, and basically it caps out at 1,000 points. And already talked about how at the end of every level, you get 100 points for every piece of food remaining. I don't know how they count the water. I don't think they, I don't think you get a bonus on the watermelon levels, though. Oh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to say one more thing about the 7800 Easter egg. This was posted on Atari Age, October 24th, 2006. By the way, just a clarification, earlier this year I was at someone's house and he couldn't get the Easter egg to work. The thing is, note the wording of the post. Select level 23. Don't actually start it. That's wow. right. Resurrecting yeah. old threads is fun. That was you talking about me. <laughs> Nine years ago. <laughs> and you don't remember the Easter egg. <laughs> I, man. This was how long it's been since I tried to trigger it. anyway the ice cream cone is worth 500 points whatever 500 times whatever the level number is like level one it's 500 points level 20 it's worth um uh, 10,000 points etc 
And uh, I think it caps out at 25,000 points at the 50th level. So level 50 and higher, 50, 000, I'm sorry, 25,000 points for um, eating a ice cream cone. Oh, one of us came up with a brilliant food fight variation. I don't remember if it was you or me. Hmm. Do you remember this? How do the chefs appear at the beginning of the level? Uh, they, they pop up out of the hole. Where else do we see chefs popping up out of a hole? Remember the old Japanese TV show from the 90s? Iron Chef. They pop up. Oh, yes. I think this was your idea. Man, because someone's got to do an Iron Chef version of this game, and including the Italian chef with his own little string quartet coming up with him. <laughs> change, do it, Iron Chef America. You change, uh, change the Charlie Chuck Sprite to Elton Brown. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> and also, something I don't, I don't remember you mentioning is that kind of in a Pac-Man sort of way, each of the four chefs has his own skill and difficulty. Oh, they do. Yeah. Like for example, like I think Oscar, for example, I think he tries to position himself between you and the ice cream. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. And what's really cool is you can actually make the chefs fall into the holes and then they die. Yep. They, re- they regenerate. They regenerate of course. Like yeah. a good video as long game as character. they don't leave their own game. But you yeah. know, one thing I want to bring up here, um, I want to bring up a couple of games that I don't know if we'll probably ever talk about them a couple of arcade games that were similar themes. There was a game called the three stooges, which was basically you were Mo Larry or curly. It was a three player at the same time game. If you do an arcade game called the three stooges, you would have to have a three player. It was by, uh, it was by Gottlieb, the people, the fine folks that brought you Qbert and you're throwing pies and destroying furniture, trying to find keys to exit the maze. Uh, I've played this game and can't say I'm a fan of it. It's just too derivative of food fight. But there's also another game. This one by Williams. It was called Splat. Oh. And this game was never released. I don't think it ever got out of prototype stage. Uh, you can find the ROM for uh, for Mame. And the uh, interesting thing about this one is this one looks almost like a complete ripoff of Food Fight. The only difference is that you have to get hit by a piece of food twice to lose a life. The first time it knocks your head off and your head flies around the screen and you have to go pick your head up. If you hit, pick your head up, you, hit, you get hit by another piece of food, it'll knock it off again. Uh, if you're trying to get to your head and you get hit by another piece of food, then you lose your life. And it was, again, pretty derivative of Food Fight. Uh, not a very fun game, which is probably why it never made it past. I think it's a prototype. I'm not 100% certain, but... I know I've never seen it in the arcade, and the only place I ever saw it outside of MAME was on a uh, arcade, a Williams Arcade compilation, and I believe they said it was just a prototype, but you're not missing anything if you miss either of these two games. Just uh, throwing that out there. And throw you did. In Pie Factory podcast tradition, I mean, I know I didn't talk about the first time I remember playing Tapper because I really don't remember. Me either. But I remember the first time I played Food Fight. Me too, and the first time I ever played the arcade food fight was uh, about two or three years ago. Oh, really? Because I I knew that this game existed, I saw it on Starcade, and in 1983 I read the article in Joystick. I never played it at that point, and that article made me a huge fan of the game. And the first time I ever played any version of Food Fight was on your Atari 7800. Really? Yep. Oh, I don't remember that. And yep. you've liked the game ever since. Oh, yeah. I, I liked the game before I ever played it. Because I was like, oh, this is such an awesome... The thing is, like, 
I never saw this game anywhere. I didn't see it at Aladdin's Castle, Lincoln Mall. I never saw it at a grocery store or convenience store. I never saw it in the wild until I went to Logan Hardware for the first time. And they had a machine there. And I'm guessing that Food Fight is a difficult machine to maintain. I would imagine because of the joystick. Yeah, I always uh, we, saw it. We were, when we were at Galloping Ghost the last time, was it the Food Fight machine down because of a joystick problem? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, yeah. At, at Galloping Ghost, many times I've been there, the Food Fight machine had a problem. Thankfully, last time, last time it was great. Awesome. But, and I think Logan Hardware, the only time I ever saw it there was the first time I went. Now, I know that both at Logan Hardware and their Barcade Logan Arcade, they swap games out periodically, but I never saw Food Fight there ever again. Hmm. I have two theories. One is maybe they got rid of it because it was just too much of a pain in the butt to maintain. Or two, their machine is what's at Galloping Ghost. Ah. They might have sold it off to Doc or something. Possible. Yeah, I told you before about Centipede, how the Centipede yeah. at Replay used to be the Centipede at headquarters. Yes, I remember that. A lot of these machines have parts that are just kind of hard to maintain, so it's not a slight oh, toward yeah. any, any, any arcade no, operator. No, 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 Some no, no, of no. them are just a pain in the butt. Yeah. We were talking about where we first played them. I remember where I first played it. Way back when, way back in the early, early Ferg, amusement parks, theme parks had arcades with video That's games. Right. And you don't see theme parks with arcades much anymore. But 1983 was a class trip to what was then known as Marriott's Great America in beautiful It was still Gurney. Marriott's Great America in 83? I believe it was. It might, be, it might have been Marriott's then, or it may have just turned Six Flags. I can't remember which. I want to think it was Marriott's then. But uh, it was Great America, the theme park, which at the time only had three roller coasters, which has, I believe, 12 now, situated exactly 45 miles from Chicago and Milwaukee. The arcade there at the back of the park by the near the entrance to the American Eagle roller coaster, which was at the time the tallest and fastest wooden roller coaster in the world, which Great America just this year has again with the introduction of Goliath. But I digress. Uh, but in that arcade, it was the very, very first time I had ever played Food Fight. I saw a Food Fight machine, popped a token in it, played it. Never saw the game in an arcade until we went to Galloping Ghost. Never saw it in an arcade since, until then. Not at least in Joliet, where I would normally hang out. Yeah, I'm surprised that it was such a, f a hard game to find. That's just my experience. I... By the way, that's the same arcade where I first played Pac-Mania. There we are. Oh, by the way, Charlie Chuck... Charlie is spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Basically the same way that, tr that Charlie of Travels with Charlie is spelled. Mm-hmm. Chuck is spelled C-H-U-C-K apostrophe S. Spelled oh. Chucks, yes. Mm -hmm. So Chuck is? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yes. those, those bloody apostrophes. Uh, anyway, let's. Uh, I want to talk about some high scores here. <sighs> oh, wait a minute. <sighs> yeah, yeah, pass that over. Talking man. about high scores, yeah. man. Oh, whoa, whoa, man! I see flying food. I think we're parked. Yeah. Wow, that kid's head got real big when he ate that ice cream cone. <laughs> anyway, you know what? Arcade... That would explain the kid's appetite for ice cream. Now that I think about yeah. it, Orcade.com Orcade.com lists three different tracks. For high for high scores of food fight. Choo Interestingly, choo. two of the different tracks are both at Galloping Ghost, but they only have one machine, so I don't know what that's all about. But uh, they have a setting for Marathon, 
uh, performed at Galloping Ghost on July 9th, 2011 by James White with a score of 581,800. And he also has the tournament record, uh, which was uh, achieved April 6, 2013, also at Galloping Ghost, 593,900. There's a third track, which they call Select Mode Off, which I, which I believe means that the machine is set so you cannot select what level you start at. Jamie Cahill has the record for that. He performed that uh, July 24th, 2009 at Richie Knuckles and scored 525,200. Now, going further back than that, we go to Twin Galaxies. Marathon settings, Ken Okumura, verified January 3rd, 1984 with a... Oh, watch this. This is, this is even better than my score. Ken scored 103,103,100. Ding! Yeah, 103 million! 103 million points. And uh, I know this is kind of a downer in comparison, but the tournament settings, meaning that you don't keep getting bonus chucks every time, but uh, John <laughs> Dworkin bonus uh, verified on June 8th, 2001, scored 1,234,100. Oh, As oh for hold on, hold on. Uh, here comes a bonus check. Oh, uh, uh, this is a chunky chuck. That sounds pretty bad for a bonus. Uh, uh, it's a chunky chuck. Yeah, okay, chunky sorry chunk. about that. And what kills me is Charlie Chuck is basically a skinny version of me. <laughs> anyway. the same size head, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't get much bigger than that. <laughs> Never thought about it. it. It does kind of look like you now that I think about it. <laughs> I never even noticed that. <laughs> Highest score on record for Sean Co is <laughs> watch out Ken Okumura, thirty five thousand nine hundred. I've actually scored a hell of a lot higher than that on the Atari seventy eight hundred version, but hey, I know I've scored more than that on the seventy eight hundred version. I couldn't tell you what my arcade score is because, as I said, I only played it in the arcade the one time back in eighty three and. I didn't know I was going to do a podcast back then. Hell, I didn't even know what the hell a podcast was. I barely understand what a podcast is now. Oh, I knew I was going to do a podcast. And I didn't pay. I didn't play it in MAME either because there's weird idiosyncrasies with, uh, yeah. with playing it in MAME. You, you, first of all, you, you really can't play it well with your keyboard because your keyboard, the best you Ooh. can get are eight positions, you know, if you use the arrow keys, because up, down, left, right, and then the intermediates if you push at the same couple of them at the same time so you kind of need a good analog controller which i've got one but it's been acting really wonky lately and i need to get a new one hint 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 <laughs> but uh, <laughs> christmas is coming up i hear <laughs> hope your wife <laughs> and kids listen to this podcast but it's uh i've noticed with the with you play it on mame and it might just be the way i have it set up it's it's like charlie chuck always well, when you're playing the game, uh, the direction you're moving the joystick, even at the beginning of the level before the action starts and Charlie Chuck is in one spot, the direction you point the joystick is the direction Charlie Chuck will look. His eyes will move in that direction. If I've loaded this up in MAME, and then if I'm doing something wrong, somebody please uh, uh, contact us and let, me, let us know. He always seems to be pointing to the right, and he tends to drift that direction. Yeah, let me contact us right now. I noticed the same thing. Um, I was using, when I was practicing for this episode, I was using uh, my Uber Arcade joystick plugged mm -hmm. with a USB connector. It's, an, it's a standard eight-way joystick. 
And it did have some weird idiosyncrasies, but I found that the longer I, like the first game I played, it was really weird. Like Chuck was looking in one direction, going the other. After that game was over, the second game I played, it, Chuck was actually a lot more responsive. Really? And yeah, it was actually very playable <laughs> after that. So if you, I think the, basically the longer your, your, your digital stick is plugged in, the more it calibrates or something. It's really weird. I, I tried with a trackball too. I got, I have one of those, uh, Sega sports pads that uh, Phil the No Swear Gamer once recommended. Oh, and I, I tried gotta that. get one of those, and uh, it didn't it didn't work so well. Yeah, I just got one and I use it in conjunction with a Seagull seventy eight adapter on my seventy eight hundred for Centipede. It works surprisingly well. I hate you. But. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you've got all of this fancy schmancy stuff, and I've got a broken Xbox controller that I was using to play the game. I has a sad. Of course, I, my money is better spent on, say, Christmas presents and uh, my grad school loans and uh, credit card Money bills for luxuries like food and yeah. shoes. Uh, what say ye about how you would rate this game? Even though I haven't really played the arcade game all that much, Food Fight is one of my all-time favorite games. It really, really is. So naturally, I'm going to give it a, a five out of five continues. Yeah. It's such a unique game. In fact, you might even remember this, but years and years ago... I think this was even before I ever played Food Fight. I was basing it on the article and joystick and the screenshots and everything. Which I noticed something about this. I was looking at this uh, while we were talking. The issue of Joystick Magazine that the article about Food Fight is in is the same one that has Sinistar, and it's yeah. the same one that has that letter. It's the same. We keep referencing yeah. that same damn issue of the magazine. That's the only issue I ever had. That's, <laughs> That's the why. only one I, I think ever I still had. have the paper copy. <laughs> I still just find it funny. Yeah, seriously, a lot of my video game interests come from that one issue of Joystick. Yeah, like yeah. I recently sought out a copy of Attack of the or Revenge of the Beefsteak Tomatoes for the twenty six hundred. Because of the rating they gave it in 1983, and I love that game. <laughs> and yeah, and because of, partly because of that article is why I love Food Fight so much, because I learned so much about mm-hmm. it. I learned how unique it is. Well, actually, I can't say how unique, because as a college writing professor once commented in one of my essays, there's no such thing as total as completely unique or very unique. There's it's no either such thing as total uniquity? Nope. It's either You either have uniquity or you don't. That was a great album by the police, by the way. Yeah, we already talked about that. Oh, we did that joke? Damn it. Or did we? Oh, you know what? I think Hyde cut it out. So Hyde, don't cut this one yes. out. The Uniquity. And the best song on that album is Uniquity, Uniquity too. too. Yes. Yes. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique concept for a game. If you look at the history of it, the history of the game says something different. But in reality, this is a unique concept. It really is. Absolutely love it. And really, that is the number one reason I went to eBay and got a 7800 about nine years ago so I could play Food Fight. There are other amazing titles for 7800. Surprisingly, a lot of crap titles, too. But uh, anyway, that's the yeah, main well, reason. Yeah, we, well, we know who to blame for that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, we'll, we, and, which is interesting because we're, we will, you know what? I'm going to hold off on you. <laughs> uh, so, so, this was a five for you, huh? It is absolutely a five for me. Yeah, you know what? And I'll say it too. Even though I only, like I said, I've only played the arcade, played it in the arcade once. Thinking about it, I think I may have played it twice at Great America that day. But basing it mostly off of MAME, which I have played it in the past, uh, just not any time recently because of my broken controller, and mostly my experiences with the 7800, the 7800 version is spot on. I mean, it is really 100% arcade accurate, I would say. 
98% if you don't count the arcade uh, <laughs> uh, Easter egg. But uh, it's really, it's really, really spot on. And uh, I would say that if you're good at the 7800 version, you can easily get good at the arcade version. Yeah, the problem is I, I just, think it's that I good. just never really played the arcade version enough. Like I play a couple of games right. and I'd be like, you know, what? let me see what else is there. But I still love it. I still love it. It's still yeah. one of my favorites. Oh, going back to the whole MAME thing, some other idiot, one of the other idiosyncrasies of the of playing this in MAME, yeah. for some reason, half the time when I open up Food Fight in MAME, for some reason, it opens up to the uh, to service mode. I don't know why. Might be because uh, of the weird I joystick handling. I have not experienced handling. that. I wonder if there was a, a dip switch setting that you you hit or something. As we said before, you can always uh, you can always delete the the configuration file for that game that and then rerun true. it and see if that see if that solves the problem. Yeah, and going back to like w- just to show you how much I love this game, how much I love Food Fight. First of all, like what I was starting to say is like years and years ago when I was still an Amiga user, like when I still had my Amiga six hundred. Actually, <laughs> there was a program called Shoot 'Em Up Construction Kit. I think it was on a lot of computers. Oh, I remember that on the Atari ST. Yeah. I uh, I had a less than legal version. I'm sure a lot of us uh, did. Anyway, I actually tried to make a food fight with that. I actually got the graphics looking pretty good. I just couldn't get the gameplay down. Oh, no kidding. But uh, yeah, I got yeah, the only thing is like, I don't think you could like have a stop on there. If you stopped Chuck, his legs would keep walking, but I couldn't figure out a way around mm. that. But uh, and also how much I love food fight hmm. when I got my Amiga, my micro Amiga one, which is a new generation Amiga running on a G3 processor. There's a program on the Amiga called Directory Opus, which is one of the most awesome programs ever made. It's a it's short. I'm not going to get into the details. Just look it up on Wikipedia or something. But you could basically do any kind of file operation. Where you can copy files from one directory to another in the same window. Uh, you could display files. You could convert files from one format to another with the thing. And you could put your own custom buttons in Directory Opus. I actually put in Directory Opus a button labeled food fight. And when you clicked on that button, it would actually open up mess and play the Atari 7800 food fight. Oh, nice. And I even left that intact for the person that I sold it to. Very nice. I'd say this game's a classic, but it's not one of the, the, the classics. It's not one of the games that everybody talks about, yeah. I would say, but I would, I would say for me, it's a personal classic. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's, it's like a, level two it's like a what, what was the term we used for say uh tier two it's, it's like a tier two classic but with the quality of a of a core classic yeah 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 i think that's a good way of putting it i don't know like i said my experience with the arcade machine hasn't been, has been extremely limited but because i just didn't have a whole ton of them around here so i think that about does it for uh for the show today i think it does uh, and uh what is the theme Oh, the theme is food and drink. Yes. Eat, drink, and be merry. Merry, that's my name. No sh. So anyway, um, oh, you, yeah, you're the host this week. You, you outro us. Yeah. So next episode, we are actually going to be taking a break from arcade games. Boo! And we're going to celebrate the end of the year and the beginning of a new year with an episode about our favorite home console. I think it's probably our, both of our favorite home console. And that is the Atari 7800. Boo! And I think the reason, we're, the reason we're going with this one is because it's just the next logical progression in the consoles that we've owned. And we got stories. Oh, I've got stories about buying my first and second Atari 7800. So, oh. And, uh, yeah. So, that's what we're going to be doing next time. So, once again, from 
Actually, I got sent down to the factory farm in Morris, Illinois, and Jimmy G. And I've been too busy for them to send me anywhere else but Pie Factory headquarters north in Chicago, and this is Sean Coe. And we will catch you all again in two weeks, so if uh, this episode doesn't, the ne- if, you know what, heck with it. Have a good time. Yeah, yeah, me too. Bye-bye. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is the Happy CTA Holiday Train, composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Adenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goebel. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via the Facebook page, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or the show notes page on PieFactoryPodcast.com. Fox Bat. Do you think John Singletary is related to Mike Singletary? Uh, he didn't offer that That's what they call a darn good question. Thank you. Thank you. I try my best to, uh, to question people. Try harder. Uh, I'm always I'm always trying harder. By the way, one of my favorite things to watch on TV at Thanksgiving is his fried turkey episode. Oh dear lord, that with the awesome. with the with the ladder and the yep. siren and the police but, light and the pulleys and all that. But, yeah. but I'm hoping when we go to Galloping Ghost ah, this coming weekend <laughs> that uh, the food fight machine's working cuz I got an itch to play it. Hey, let's record a version in ca- of that in case it does work and you did get a chance to play it. So I did get a p- chance to play it. Yeah? So w- weren't you glad? Oh, yes, I was. All right, let's do it. Let's do another chance. Man, it just sucks that the food fight machine didn't work when we were there this past Saturday. You know, we, 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 yeah. went, we, we reported it. We reported it to the staff, and of course, they went right to work on it. But unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to play it in time. Okay, let's, let's, let's do another take. Okay. <laughs> President Ford was eaten by a bunch of ravenous wolves today. They said he was delicious. Okay, I think that's enough takes. Okay.